So tell me, what is the name of your rich uncle? What is the name of that rich uncle that's going to leave everything to you? Do you, do you not have that rich uncle? Wouldn't it be nice to have a rich uncle like that? They, they say that when James Brown died, there were numerous people that uh, claimed to be some of his unknown descendants and, and, and wanting to have a claim on his inheritance. Uh, if I remember correctly, Elvis Presley in his will had a line that, that said that his uh, inheritance was being left to Lisa Marie, excluding all other unknown progentry. Uh, and so there are some times that, that those things happen. People claim that, that they're related to someone so that they can have a piece of that pie. And they claim to be a son or a daughter of some wealthy, famous individual. When Jesus claims the title, Son of God, is he claiming that title because he just wants a monetary reward based on that title? Or is he claiming Last week we started looking at this idea of if Jesus really was God, why did he not claim to be God in Scripture? And last week we... We looked at the fact that, that Jesus claimed this title, Son of Man. That was a unique title, and it was a reference to Daniel chapter 9, in which uh, there was one like a Son of Man going up to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. This morning, I want us to think about this title that we see in the New Testament of Jesus called the Son of God. What is this a reference to? What did Jesus mean by using this title? Does it really point to his deity? I want us to explore this thought this morning by looking at some Old Testament hints of this title, Son of God, and then looking at a couple key New Testament passages and then thinking about the importance of the Son of God in our lives as Christians today. Let's start off by looking at Isaiah chapter 9 as one of those Old Testament passages that hints at this idea of a Son of God or the Son of God. Isaiah chapter 9, as you will recall, is one of those great messianic passages that talks about a Messiah that is to come. But notice some of the language that is used. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah the prophet says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What's interesting about this passage is Isaiah says there's going to be a child that is born. Okay, well, there's a lot of children that are born. No, no, this child is going to be unique. This child is going to be special. And notice the language that Isaiah uses to describe this child. Not only does it say that the government's going to rest on his shoulders, but he says he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, so he's, he's going to be a great guy. He's going to be someone that, that gives great advice. He's going to be a great teacher. And there's some people that they would stop right there. 
But then Isaiah says, he will be called mighty God. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Mighty God. The Old Testament speaks about this child that's going to be born, and his name is going to be not only Wonderful Counselor, but Mighty God. Expressing this idea of deity. But you see, it's this expression of deity that's assigned to this child that is to be born. And yet he's also going to be called Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Many Jewish scholars point out, well, this is royal language. This is uh, referring to his royalty and the Davidic line as you continue on down into verse 7. But no one else do you see in the Davidic line referred to as mighty God. The Israelites did not worship their kings as gods. There's something different about this child. His kingdom is always going to be there. His kingdom is going to be eternal. His kingdom is going to last. And certainly none of the Israelite kings can make that claim, except through the Messianic line fulfilled in Christ Jesus. In Psalm chapter 22, verses 6 through 11, we have another hint of this idea of a God or a son of God that is to be born. Notice what the psalmist says. Let's start off in verse 1 for just a moment. Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. You ought to recognize from Jesus' uh, last words on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For my deliverance are the words of my groaning. And then notice verse 6. He says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are one who brought me, you are he who brought me, who made me. Upon you uh, I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. This passage does not make a clear statement of a sonship in, in terms of coming from God, and yet it uses this language, which to you and I is foreign. But you brought me from my, my mother's womb. Uh, reflects an idea common in antiquity of a father being there at the birthing process, helping to deliver a child. Unique language in, in, in that respect. Uh, a reference perhaps that this child was going to be a, a child of God, a son of God. And we're going to keep this psalm in mind because when we get to the New Testament, we're going to an interchange or interaction between Jesus and the Jewish leadership in which Jesus quotes from Psalm chapter 22 and the Jewish leaders recognize this as being a claim of deity and of sonship of God. That's how they understood this passage. And so when Jesus quotes from this passage and applies it to himself, the Jews are recognizing him as making a claim of deity. Now let's look at Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Psalm chapter 2, rather. 
Psalm chapter 2, verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, meaning those who refuse to acknowledge God. Verse 5, He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. To me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth, your possession. You shall you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them with earthware. Here, it's very clear. God says, "You are my son." Today, I've begotten thee. And this very passage is a passage that the Hebrew writer uses in Hebrews chapter 1 to talk about the fact that Jesus has a higher place than the angels because God says of Jesus, you are my son. The son of God. And so we have these hints in the Old Testament that refer to this fact that in a day coming from the Old Testament perspective, there is going to be coming this one who is the son of God, who is a unique child, who is born by God and is the Son of God. And when we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus oftentimes reflects back on these passages in a way which to the Jewish leadership was his statement of deity. Because as the Son of God, He is God. As the Son of God, He is deity. Notice John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. Notice the interaction that takes place between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. John chapter 10 and verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking to the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him, saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now recognize that word Christ means Messiah, or the equivalent in the Greek of the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one, the special one, the one who is supposed to come and sit on David's throne, the one who is supposed to accomplish all those passages that we just read, and then some. Tell us, are you him or not? Not because they're really curious, I suppose, but because of their jealousy, because of their animosity towards Jesus. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And so Jesus says, look, if you don't believe that I'm the Son of God, if you don't believe I'm the Messiah, look at the miracles that I'm doing. Would I be able to do these things if God had not enabled me, empowered me to do them? He authorized me to do them. That ought to give you a hint of my identity. Verse 29. Notice what Jesus says. My Father has given them to me, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Notice that statement that Jesus makes. I and the Father are one. Now look what the Jews respond with in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. 
for which of thee, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They recognized that Jesus was claiming to be deity. They recognized that Jesus was claiming to be God in two ways in this passage. One, by saying, My Father. Now, you and I call God, God our Father. And we all understand the sense in which we're using that. And the Jews, in the very same sense, would have used that terminology. But Jesus is not just saying, God the Father, in that sense. He's saying, my Father gave me the ability to do these works. He's making a very close personal relationship uh, between himself and God the Father. More so than just saying, God the Father. And the Jews recognize that. And they're getting agitated with them. And Jesus says, the Father and I are one. And they recognize that to be a claim of deity. And so they go to stone Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you not say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you blasphemy because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus very clearly there says in verse 36, I am the Son of God. And he uses that phrase not just to say, in a general sense, we're all children of God. No, he's saying, I am the Son of God. Look at the miracles that I am enabled to do as evidence that I am the Son of God. And the Jews couldn't stand it. The Jewish leadership couldn't stand it. They couldn't believe it. They refused to believe it. And so they sought to kill Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, we see uh, a similar thing going on. This time they're making fun of Jesus because here he is hanging on the cross. And they said, aha, we told you you weren't anything special. We told you you weren't the Son of God. Notice what happens, Matthew chapter 27, verse 41. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The Jewish leaders quote from Psalm chapter 22 that you and I just read a few minutes ago. And they associate that with Jesus' statement, I am the Son of God. And they're saying, look, he claimed to be the Son of God. And over here in Psalm chapter 22, although they didn't call it Psalm chapter 22, but it was Psalm chapter 22. They said, look over here in Psalm chapter 22, God is making the statement about his child having brought him out of his mother's womb and made him his, the, the child of God, and God delights in him. Well, if that's true, let God bring Jesus down from the cross. Because he said, I'm the Son of God. Well, we don't believe that he's the Son of God. And so we don't believe that God's going to do that. 
But you see, for the purpose of our discussion this morning, do you see how they put two and two together? That Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, just like Psalms 20, Psalm 22 suggested of the object of Psalm 22, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus. And now they're mocking him as he hangs on the cross, completely missing the point of what Jesus was going to do. And so when Jesus, in verse 46, the verse says, in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lamas tabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just that Jesus is there on the cross crying out saying, why have you abandoned me? He's quoting Psalm chapter 22 to point out to these Jewish leaders, I am the fulfillment of the very passage you were just mocking me with. Read Matthew chapter 27 at home. And then read Psalm chapter 22. You will have chills down your spine. And the, hand, the hair on your arms will stand up because of the closeness of what happens to Jesus at his crucifixion. And the things that the psalmist prophesies is going to happen to the Son of God. They sneer at me. They make fun of me. Jesus was that Son of God. The statement is not just a coincidence. Jesus knew the claims. The Jews knew the claims that Jesus had made, and Jesus is holding that to him, to them, that he is that Son of God. He is deity. Jesus only refers to himself four times with that title, Son of God. But 39 times throughout scriptures, throughout the New Testament scriptures, he talks about his father in a very uh, relational, in a very direct way. One of those is Mark chapter 14. Let's look at Mark chapter 14. This is Christ right before he goes to the cross. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Verse 36. He was saying, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That word Abba is the Hebrew word for Papa. Papa. Anglo families today might say Daddy. A term of respect, yet love. A term of respect, yet closeness. Papa. Daddy. If there's any other way, let it be. But whatever your will is, I'll do. 
Folks, as Jesus knew what was about to happen to him, he knew the anguish and the suffering he was about to endure. He was not claiming something just for attention, just for money, just for some sort of reward. He's claiming to be in a very close and intimate way the Son of God. And because he was the Son of God, he himself is deity. He himself is God. So what is the importance of this phrase, the Son of God? We recognize, again, this to be a claim of deity, a statement of His deity. But more so, it tells us of God's love for us. How do we respond to such love? That Jesus would come as the Son of God, that His Father would send His Son to come and die to remove our sin and to provide us a pathway to citizenship in heaven, to salvation. Because He loves us. That's why John says, or Jesus says in John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not, pa uh, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It says a few other things we need to know about from the verses that follow that such as those who don't believe are condemned already. But you see, Jesus came as the Son of God because of the Father's love for you and me. And Jesus came because of His love for His Father and for you and me. And so what needs to be our response? We need to follow Jesus. We need to be a part of that kingdom that the Son of God was to receive, that the Son of Man was to receive. So that when Jesus returns and He takes that kingdom and He gives it back over to His Father, you and I are in that kingdom. And we do that by being united with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurre resurrection through baptism. We do that by doing everything we can to continue to live according to the standard and the will of God. Why Jesus says, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have taught you, apostles. And that's what we strive to do. If you're here this morning and you need help in your walk with Christ, maybe you need to be united with Christ in baptism. Maybe you need the prayers of the church for things going on in your life. Whatever you need, won't you come together with Stan and Saints?